This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 91, The Death of Bhishma. Last time, we heard a few more vignettes from Bhishma's last teachings. You know, I've been scouring the text from the beginning for the slightest hint of a reference to Buddhism. I figured that, since we have some pretty solid dating for the rise of Buddhism in India, that any reference might help us better with dating the composition of this epic. And then here we get a debate that effectively takes place between Bhishma and some Buddhist philosophers. Unfortunately, the Ganguly translation lacks a Sanskrit concordance, so I'm completely dependent on his translation and chosen terminology. But Ganguly is certain that this is a debate over Buddhism, and it seems pretty clear to me as well. They do use the term nirvana, which as far as I know is a Buddhist term. At least this is the first time I've seen it used in this epic. In the Mahabharata, the preferred term for salvation or emancipation is moksha. So, now that we have a clear mention of Buddhism in the text, can we now safely say that the Mahabharata was written after 500 BC? Unfortunately, the answer is no. This particular part of the book seems to be almost entirely made up of later insertions. So this debate could have been written centuries after the rest of the epic was composed. What I have been looking for and never found was any sign of Buddhist thought influencing the philosophy of the Mahabharata. There definitely is a consistent religious philosophy in the epic, but I really have not seen anything Buddhist about it. In fact, its complete indifference to the ideals of Buddhism makes me think that it was written long before that religion was founded. On the other hand, there are references to Greek kings and Greek armies sprinkled throughout the text, and I can't imagine that ancient Hindus were aware of the Greek barbarians before Alexander, who was in India two centuries after the Buddha. The final story was about a false Brahmin, Matanga. He was, in fact, the son of a barber. In them days, a barber was considered to be of a lower caste than even a shudra. The moral of this story is that it's pretty damned hard to be born a Brahmin, and the odds of becoming an honorary Brahmin, like Vishvamitra once did, are basically nil. It is clear that in the context of the epic, only the most highly evolved souls are born as Brahmins, and no legitimately born Brahmin was ever possessed of a young or lesser evolved soul. This would certainly justify the privileged treatment that they demand, since a truly old soul would never abuse the honors given to Brahmins. But is this really possible? Is it possible that at some time in the past, souls scrupled to incarnate only to the castes that match their level of development? Could the system that determines soul incarnation really be so reliable that an entire social structure could be built around it? All we know is that an ancient social structure was indeed built upon this premise, so perhaps we should assume that the answer is yes. The next logical question is, does the system still work today? Are all, or at least most, Brahmins incarnated from the most advanced souls? I can hardly believe that could be true, but then again, I haven't knowingly met enough Brahmins to make a definitive judgment. In any case, this whole concept was interesting to Yudhishthira as well, and he started to think up as many exceptions as he could. He came up with two examples. The first was Vishwamitra, whom we met long ago, I believe in episode 5, and we heard of him again in the story of Rama's famous genocide, episode 87. He was the product of a mix-up that led to a daughter, who was married to a Brahmin, giving birth to the warlike Rama, while her mother, who was married to a king, had a priestly son named Vishwamitra. The only other case of lower caste person being promoted to the status of Brahmin was a more obscure king named Vitahavya. Addressing Bhishma, Yudhishthira said, You have explained how exceedingly difficult it is to become a Brahmin, but I've heard how Vishvamitra pulled it off. 
And isn't there another person, King Vitahavya, who has also obtained that status? How did he accomplish this? Bhishma explained that way back in ancient times, in the direct lineage of Manu, was a king named Vitahavya, son of Vatsa. This king was an aggressive conqueror who had ten wives and a hundred sons. These sons of his were real marauders who defeated one kingdom after another. These bullies swept across the plains of North India, sweeping aside their enemies. One of their conquests was the ancient kingdom of Kashi, modern-day Varanasi. The brothers killed the king of Kashi in a pitched battle and, after occupying that holy city, placed the dead king's son, Sudeva, on the throne. Having established their superiority, the 100 Vatsas returned to their own lands, laden with spoils and glory. Sudeva ruled his denuded kingdom as best he could, and gradually that wealthy city recovered from the war. But as soon as her prosperity had recovered, the marauders were back. Again, the brothers sacked the city, killed her king, and placed Sudeva's son, Divadasa, on the throne. Then the sons of Vitahavya returned home again. Determined not to let this calamity happen again, King Divadasa built stronger defenses around the city and trained a new army. Soon enough, the sons of Vitahavya returned to try their might against their new opponent. Divadasa met them at the head of a great army, and a terrific battle took place before the walls of the city. The battle lasted 1,000 days, but eventually the defenders were all wiped out, and Divadasa was forced to flee the country. Bereft of his kingdom, Divadasa sought shelter at the ashram of the sage Bharadvaja, son of Brahaspati. The sage welcomed him and asked what brought him. Divadasa said, Holy One, the sons of Vitahavya have killed my sons and brothers. Only I have escaped them. I come here seeking your protection. Bharadvaja said, Don't worry about a thing. I'll do a sacrifice that will put things right. I'll get you a son who could kill thousands of ruffians like your enemies. So saying, the sage worked his magic, and Divodasa was granted a mighty son. He grew so fast that he was as big as a teenager after his first day. To top it off, Bharadvaja used his yogic power to enter into this prince, endowing the boy with the powers of a great rishi. The boy was called Pritardana. In no time, the prince mastered both the Vedas and the art of warfare. His father was delighted and resigned his crown in favor of his resplendent heir. Blessing the boy, he commanded him to march on his foes and get some revenge. With pleasure, the boy mounted his chariot and marched on the sons of Vitahavya, bringing the war to their own territory. Vitahavya's 100 sons rode out to meet him before their city, and they immediately set to fighting. One by one, Pratardana killed each of Vitahavya's bully boys, until all 100 lay slain on the field of battle. And now it was Vitahavya's turn to run away. The Vatsa monarch, bereft of his sons and his kingdom, sought shelter with his favorite sage, Burgu. Burgu took him in and gave him asylum. It wasn't long before Patardana tracked him down, however, and soon he arrived at the ashram and demanded that Burgu hand over his adversary. Moved by compassion for his charge, Burgu replied, There ain't nobody here but us Brahmins. Sorry, but we have no Kshatriyas here. Since Rishis never lie, there was nothing more to be done. Pratardana said, What you say must be true, so I'm glad to hear that I scared the Kshatriya right out of Vitahavya. Obviously, as a result of my prowess, that king has been abandoned by his own caste. Satisfied that his mission was complete, Pratardana asked for Burgu's blessing and then returned to Kashi, where he reinstated his father's crown. As for Vitahavya, Burgu's word was enough to make him a Brahmin, 
and he soon mastered all the Vedas and became an accomplished priest. The next story that he considered covering was a dialogue between Narada and an Apsara over the qualities of women. I started reading through it, and I found it so misogynistic that I really don't want to go into it. Overall, one can hardly say that the Mahabharata is progressive on women's issues, but so far the story has been remarkably sensitive to its female characters for a 3,000-year-old epic. So I'm going to assume that this dialogue, which is very insulting to the female gender, must be a later insertion, and we'll move on. As we approach the latter parts of the Book of the Final Teachings, the focus moves more toward discussions of Krishna and his identity. Many pages are filled with descriptions of his omnipotence and greatness. At the end of one such panegyric, Bhishma concluded by congratulating the Pandavas for their good fortune in having Vasudeva as their friend and advisor. As we are all still trying to make sense of that great war, I think it is worthwhile to quote from Bhishma's judgment on the matter. He said, Without a doubt, my son, great shall be the benefits you shall reap for being friends with Vasudeva. I grieve for that wicked Duryodhana because it was he who caused the earth to become depopulated of men, horses, and elephants. Indeed, it is through the fault of Duryodhana, Karna, Shakuni, and Dushasan that the Kurus have perished. With all this talk about Krishna, Yudhishthira finally turned to him and asked Krishna to impart some wisdom. Krishna offered to sing the hymn to Shiva that he recited each morning. He said that Brahma himself had composed the hymn. Krishna said, It is Shiva who created all beings and all things in the universe. There is no being higher than Shiva, Mahadev. He is the highest of all beings in all the worlds. When he stands on the field of battle, his body odor is enough to drive off all enemies. And when Shiva is angry, the whole universe becomes unstable. Krishna then sang the many names of Shiva. I love the recursive nature of Hindu theology. Just a few pages earlier, Bhishma told us that there is no one greater than Krishna. But then Krishna tells us that there's no one greater than Shiva. But somehow, this all makes sense. Now finally, Yudhishthira ran out of questions. The frame jumps back a level to the dialogue between Vaisampayana and Parikshit. Vaisampayana said, When Bhishma fell silent, the many kings in attendance also became quiet. Finally, Vyasa spoke. He addressed Bhishma, saying, King Yudhishthira has now been restored to his former equanimity you may give him leave to return to his capital. So Bhishma said, Return now to your city, O king, and let your troubles and worries be dispelled. Go now and worship the gods and perform your sacrifices. Take care of your people and be generous to your friends. When the time comes for my departure, come back one last time. Saluting his uncle, Yudhishthira, his kinsmen, Krishna, and the rishis all picked up and set off for Hastinapur, the city of the elephant. Assuming the throne, the Pandava king undertook to comfort all the bereaved families, ensure good government, and reward his patriots. He saw to his kingly duties for a period of fifty days, at which time he observed that the sun had nearly reached the winter solstice. Bhishma was not long for this world. Forming a procession, Yudhishthira and his priests returned to Kurukshetra bearing large quantities of garlands, silks, incense, and ghee to be used for the great man's cremation. The brothers, Gandhari, Kunti, Vidur, Krishna, Dhritarashtra, Yuyutsu, and Yuyudan, all with their priests and retainers, made up the rest of the procession. When they arrived at the famous bed of arrows, they found Vyasa, Narada, and a handful of other kings already congregated around him. Yudhishthira approached the old man and said, The time has come that you have appointed. As we promised, here we are with all the necessary supplies. 
Please tell us, what should we do next? Bhishma was lying there, deep in meditation. Slowly, he opened his eyes and said, It is well that you have arrived on time. The holy Surya has begun his northward course. I have lain here like this for fifty-eight days, but it has felt like a century. Turning to Durastra, he said, Do not grieve, my brother. Yudhishthira and his brothers are morally as much your sons as the sons of Pandu. King Yudhishthira is pure-souled and will always be obedient to you. Your own sons were wicked, wrathful, and greedy, so do not grieve for them. Next, he turned to Krishna and said, O Holy One, God of gods, you are the creator and the supreme soul of all beings. Please give me your leave to depart this world. Krishna said, I give you leave. Go now and attain the status of the Vasus. You have not been guilty of a single transgression. That is why you have been allowed to choose the time of your death. Bhishma then addressed the crowd. He said, I am now ready to give up my life breath. My advice to you is to strive for truth. Make sure your priests are righteous, compassionate, and self-controlled. The narrator says that Bhishma then fell silent. As his breath ceased, his wounds all began to heal, starting at his feet and working their way toward his head. When his body was made completely whole, ending at the top of his head, his spirit departed his body. Then drums could be heard in the distance, and flowers rained down on his body. The sadhus and rishis all exclaimed with delight as they watched Bhishma's spirit body shoot off into the heavens like a fiery meteor returning to the source. Then the Pandavas and Vidur together gathered wood and incense and arranged his funeral pyre. Yudhishthira wrapped Bhishma's body in a silk cloth and lay garlands upon it. Then Yuyutsu held an umbrella over the body. Bhima and Arjun held yak tail whisks. The twins held some sort of headgear, while Yudhishthira stood at his feet with a large fan. Then the cremation was performed. When the fire died out, the mourners progressed to the banks of the Ganga, where they were joined by the citizens of Hastinapur. There, they all made the traditional water oblation in Bhishma's memory. The goddess of the river, Bhishma's dear mum, rose from the waters, weeping and distracted with sorrow. Speaking to the assembly, she eulogized her son. She said, Endowed with wisdom and nobility, my son was devoted to serving his elders. He could not be defeated even by Battleaxe Rama, who used magical weapons. There was no one on earth who could match him. But still, that hero was killed by Sikandin. The inconsolable goddess could speak no more from her weeping. Krishna tried to comfort her. He said, Do not grieve so much. Without a doubt, your son has gone to the highest realms. He was one of the Vasus, and he only came to earth as a result of a curse. He lived by his dharma and died the best way one could hope for. He was not slain by Sikandin. Not even Indra could have done that. Now he exists in a state of supreme joy, so do not grieve for him. This succeeded in consoling the goddess, and she once again subsided beneath the waters. The ceremony complete, the group of mourners broke up and returned to the city. This ends the 13th book of the Mahabharata, called the Anasasana Parva. The next book, called the Ashvamedha Parva, or the Book of the Horse Sacrifice, picks up right where the last book ended, with the mourners at the banks of the Ganga. It says that as the crowd dispersed, Yudhishthira remained at the riverside, consumed with grief. Inconsolably, he fell to the ground in sorrow, like an elephant felled by a hunter. As Bhima knelt beside him, Krishna said, No, don't do this again. Then blind Dhritarashtra said, Rise up now, my son, and attend to your duties. You have just conquered the earth, and legitimately so. 
So now enjoy her with your brothers and friends. I can't believe you're sad at a time like this. I'm the one who should be grieving. I just lost all 100 of my sons. But I repent now. I should have listened to my wise brother Vidor. I remember well how he told me long ago to dismiss Duryodhana and put you in charge, or else there would be a disaster. But, fool that I was, I followed that wicked Duryodhana. Having disregarded my brother's sage advice, I have been plunged into an ocean of sorrow. But as for you, what do you have to be heartbroken over? This reminder of his relative good fortune calmed Yudhishthira down somewhat. Then Krishna said, It is not good to excessively mourn the dead. They are trying to enjoy themselves in the next world, but your sorrow keeps dragging them back to your misery. And you should know better than to act this way. Yudhishthira said, Krishna, you have always been good to me, so if you'd really like to know what would make me happy, allow me to go to the forest and live there in penance. I have no peace now that I have slain my grandfather and my brother Karna. Vyasa then chimed in, saying, There you go again. We've been over this so many times, so just stop it now and get on with your duties. It was God's will that you went through all this, so there is nothing to feel guilty over. If you want to do something to allay your guilty feelings, then you should perform sacrifices, like a king should. Specifically, Vyasa advised that he should perform the great Ashvamedha horse sacrifice. Yudhishthira said, Okay, so I should do a horse sacrifice, but that's pretty costly, and you realize that the war has completely exhausted our treasury. We don't have the kind of money it takes to do this right. It's funny that Yudhishthira mentioned an alternative to giving away treasure. Instead, they could substitute the treasure with the lives of the conquered kings. Yudhishthira refused this notion, however, saying that the defeated kings were either badly injured or had been killed and replaced by their young heirs, and it wouldn't be right to kill the young and disabled in a sacrifice. Our translator Ganguli takes this to mean that human sacrifice was an acceptable practice at the time of this story. But of course, the king was talking to the very author of this story, so Vyasa had a quick solution. He considered the problem a while and then said, I've got it. There once was a sacrifice held by King Maruta up in the Himalayas. This king handed out so much wealth that the Brahmins couldn't carry it all away. So they just left heaps of gold and treasure lying there in the forest. While most people would have wanted to find the gold first and ask questions later, not Yudhishthira. No, he wanted to hear the story of Maruta and his fabulous sacrifice. According to Vyasa, this all took place long ago, back in the Silver Age, Treta Yuga. Maruta was a direct descendant of Manu, and through his virtue and might was able to make himself king of the world. His glory was such that even Indra became jealous. Concerned that this mortal might steal some of his luster, he summoned his priest Bhuspati and made him promise never to serve as a priest to a mortal king. Of course, it wasn't long before Maruta wanted to perform the best of horse sacrifices, and he requested Bhuspati to officiate. It says that Bhuspati's father, Angira, had been priest to Maruta's ancestors, so he felt he had a legitimate relationship with the Rishi as his royal sponsor. But, true to his promise, Bhuspati refused, saying he now worked for the gods and no longer did contract work with mortals. His plans frustrated, Maruta complained to the sage Narada, who, you may have noticed, often shows up when there's trouble brewing. Narada happened to know a thing or two about Bhuspati. For one, the priest to the gods had a younger brother and rival named Samvarta. These two brothers had some sort of conflict, and eventually the elder brother bested Samvarta. This occurred around the same time as Indra's triumph over the Asuras, 
So Burhaspati became Indra's priest, while Samvarta became a renunciate and went about without clothing or shelter. Narada concluded, saying, This virtuous son of Angira wanders the earth naked. If Burhaspati won't officiate for you, then his powerful brother will surely do the job. When Maruta asked how he may find this Samvarta, Narada said, He wanders around the city of Varanasi in the guise of a madman. If you go to the gates of that city, place a corpse nearby. The man who turns away from that site will be the one you seek. When you find him, follow him wherever he leads you. When you are somewhere private, clasp your hands and beg his protection. Tell him Narada sent you. Maruta did as he was instructed, left a corpse at the gates of Varanasi, and followed the naked madman who turned away. As he followed him, the sadhu threw mud and spit on him, but he persisted, his hands clasped in supplication. Finally, Samvarta got tired and sat down to rest. He questioned Maruta, who explained the story so far. Samvarta then went back to abusing the king, calling him all sorts of bad names, but Maruta kept his composure. When he calmed down, Samvarta explained that he had some mental deficiency that caused him to behave like that. Perhaps he had Tourette's syndrome. He said, given my defect, do you still want me to do your sacrifice? When Muruta insisted, the sadhu exclaimed, After my brother took up with Indra, he robbed me of all my belongings and sullied my reputation and left me with just this body. But since he turned down your business, it is okay for me to help you out. But be clear that I have no desire for wealth or presence. I only do this because my brother won't like it, and when I'm done with you, you'll be equal to Indra. Samvarta went on saying, If you really mean to go through with this, you're going to need a lot of cash, way more than you've got now. But I know where you can get some. You see, there's a peak in the Himalayas called Munjaban. There Shiva likes to hang out with all his cronies. On the slopes of this exclusive resort are rich gold mines. These mines are protected by Kubera. So you must propitiate the Lord Shiva and get his permission to access these mines, and you shall acquire lots of gold. So Maruta did exactly as he was told, and with Shiva's consent sent workmen into the mountains to retrieve the treasure. By now, there was no concealing what was going on, and Bhurispati began to get really worried that his brother might once again become his rival. Indra tried to calm him down, saying, Don't you have a comfortable life? Haven't the gods been taking good care of you? Bhurispati said, It's true, I sleep well, and the gods have been very good to me. Indra replied, Then what's the trouble? If there's anyone really bothering you, just tell me their names and I'll kill them all. So Bhurispati explained about his brother. Indra listened to his priest's desire for revenge, and he came up with a plan. He summoned the fire god, Agni, and sent him to Maruta's sacrifice as his messenger. Agni obeyed, and taking the form of a fiery tornado, he blazed over to Maruta's mountainside. The king was delighted to have such a divine guest, and he laid out a place of honor for him. Agni accepted his hospitality and said, The Lord Indra has sent me to tell you that he is very pleased with you, and wishes you to become immortal as part of this sacrifice. Therefore, he has asked me to present to you Bhurispati, who will make you immortal by officiating at your sacrifice. Maruta politely declined, saying he would already got a good priest, and besides, Bhurispati is priest of the gods, much too good for a mere mortal like himself. Agni said, Okay, but don't you know what you'll miss out on? This will be your ticket to eternal life and a free pass to heaven. I bet you'll eventually conquer all of heaven once you get there and you'll have a much easier time ruling your earthly domain. But again, Maruta thanked him, but declined his offer. Samvarta was not nearly so polite, 
He said, Go back to Indra. I'm the priest of this sacrifice, and don't come back or I'll roast you with my eyes. Agni then returned to Indra and repeated what had happened. He was so frightened by Samvarta's threat that he wouldn't go back again. He reminded Indra that they hadn't fared so well in their past conflicts with Rishis. Even gods can't stand up to Rishis. So this time Indra sent Dhritarashtra, king of the Gandharvas, to bring another message to Maruta. So the Gandharva went to Maruta and threatened him, saying, Indra orders you to accept Burhaspati as your priest, and if you don't, he'll blast you with his thunderbolt. Maruta remained diplomatic, but he again refused. He said it would be sinful to turn away his chosen priest in favor of another. So Burhaspati should stick to his divine clientele. The Gandharva warned him that he'd be sorry for this refusal and left, while menacing storm clouds formed above the sacrificial fire. Nervously, Maruta went to Samvarta for protection. Samvarta reassured him, saying, Let the thunder and lightning do their thing. Nothing can harm you with me by your side. In fact, by the power of Samvarta's chanting, he managed to force the gods, including Indra, to attend the sacrifice. I guess Samvarta did a pretty good job with the ceremony, because Indra was in a pretty good mood. He gratefully accepted his offerings, and even advised on how to get the most out of the sacrifice. At the end of the ceremony, Maruta laid out the famous heaps of treasure that were too much for even his avaricious Brahmins to carry away. So, there much of it remains. Following that ceremony, the blessed monarch ruled over a blessed people. There is no mention of the fallout between the brothers Burhaspati and Samvarta. Vyasa concluded, saying, Such were the virtues of the king who left behind all that wealth in the mountains. So now you should collect up that gold and perform your sacrifice. This story served to cheer the Pandava, and he got right to work with his ministers, planning his great sacrifice. That's all for now. It feels good to be done with those final teachings and back to the main story, even if it does have plenty of digressions of its own. Next time, Krishna will head for home while the brothers get ready to perform the biggest, fanciest Vedic sacrifice of them all, the Ashvameda Yagya. Thanks for listening. <laughs>